This is Lua, and you are listening to CITR Radio at 101.9 FM. <laughs> wow, words. 101.9 FM. This is the Arts Report, and you are listening to this. Uh, well, I'm hosting the show from the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh people. And today's show is really, really packed, but it's it's all good stuff. Um, so I do want to get right onto it. I know we started a few minutes later than usual, but you know what? We're just going to roll with it. Um, and so today, uh, we have a few different reviews. We have a few interviews and, you know, there's a lot been going on after VIF ended. Unfortunately, we weren't here last week. Um, but, uh, we're here very strongly this week. And so to start off, let's hear a review of the of the dance house performance by rubber band we had an interview last week maybe two weeks before today i'm not sure but we had an interview with jim smith the artistic director of dance house and he told us about all about uh, rubber band and the other shows for this season they're all really incredible shows check out our podcast it shows online if you want to listen to that interview again uh, but yeah, let's listen to that um, interview. Hey, Sorry. arts people. I'm Ellie. And recently, I got an opportunity to watch Rubber Band's ever-so-slightly dance production at Dance House here in Vancouver. This was the first dance show I had ever watched before, so I was going into it with no expectations. And I think that was probably the best mindset Stowen with. Right off the bat, I'd have to recommend it. During the performance, I kept a pad of paper open to write down whatever I could think. Some of the words I jotted down included hypnotizing, otherworldly, captivating, and emerge. As soon as I thought I knew where it was headed, it completely switched up on me. The amount of still absolutely astounded me. It felt like a beautiful monster of humanity and individuality. At times, the whole performance looked like a case study in conformity and human interactions. I'm having trouble articulating such a performance because viewing it was such an otherworldly experience. It began with all the dancers lying still in what appeared to be tracksuits. Slowly as the music began, the dancers grew and moved as a fluid rather than an individual. It was mesmerizing. As the performance continued, you could see sparks of individuality in the movement, noise, and reaction. The setting was unknown, but it seemed to take place in an asylum. As our dancers found their soul, they began on their quest for liberation. Their performance seemed to encapsulate so much of the human experience. Fighting, love, friendship, and even flight. I found their cries and noises to be what I can only describe as human noises. It was really interesting. I honestly can say I don't think I fully understood the story, but that doesn't deter from my enjoyment. I felt a strange sense of liberation after the show. I found the soundscape to perfectly match the movements. In the Q&A session after the matter, I learned that both the music and the dance grew together, with each influencing each other. However, I would caution those who get overwhelmed from audio to have a little apprehension before experiencing the performance. At times, I found myself a little bit overwhelmed. I think the best way I can sum up the entire show was a quote from the choreographer Victor. I feel, I feel. Thanks for listening. Hey, guys. And that was Ellie's review of the show 
uh, the dance house show from the company Rubber Band. Um, yeah, honestly, I'm sorry I missed it because I've been able to see their performances before and I know how amazing they are. And so maybe you, you, you like me have missed it this time, but no worries. There are so many great things coming from Dance House. And so now we will move into a different uh, review of Cerulean Blue, a play by Studio 58. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know how big of a fan of Studio 58 I am. Um, so let's let's jump right into it. Hey guys, I'm Sheila, and this is my first review for Arts Report. It's actually my first ever review, so bear with me. Last Friday night, I was lucky enough to attend the closing night event for the Artivism Festival, which was a performance by Kim Wardle at the Chan Center. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, Sheila, you dedicated your Friday for this show. You must have no life. Well, that is correct, but I am not the topic of discussion today. Maybe next week. Who knows? Today I'll be talking about Kim Mortal, who is a Vancouver-based, queer, non-binary, Filipinx Canadian artist and rapper, UBC alumni, and fun fact, a Sagittarius with a Leo moon, I have to say. For a new artist, the show was amazing. Everything from the stage setup to the track list to the graphics of the background, it was so beautiful and well thought out. And you can definitely feel it and see it from the audience's reaction. By the end of the show, everybody was standing up and dancing. My favorite part of this show was probably during That's My Sis, dedicated to their sister moving to Toronto. Not gonna lie, that performance made me want to text my sister and own up about that one time I borrowed slash temporarily stole her Gucci bag. My favorite song, hands down, is called I'm Blue. It definitely gives me a childish Gambino circa 2014 sober vibes. If you have no idea what that means, please Google it for your sake. If you missed the performance on Friday, do not worry. Kimortal is on Apple Music and Spotify, so go ahead and check that out. They're also on Instagram at KimortalTheArtist. Lastly, a big shout out to UBC Exposure for the free tickets. We love you. If you have any more free tickets, send them our way. I promise I won't have any Friday night plans anytime soon. Hello. And um, obviously that was not the review that I said I was going to play because I clicked the wrong button. I am sorry. But you know what? Well, you just listened to a lovely review of um, Kim Mortal from uh, the UBC Artivism 2021 Queering the Self program. No, no, that was not it. I'm so sorry, guys. Again, I said there's a lot on today's show and um yes anywho uh welcome sheila to our collective we are so happy to have you and now i'll actually play the cerulean blue review <laughs> i am so sorry about that hello ubc listeners and beyond i hope you're all having a fantastic day today my name is alex and i'm new to the citr radio station family so first i'd like to say thank you so much for having me on your airways i'm so excited to be here for my debut review, I'm going to be reviewing a play by our neighbors at Langara College called Cerulean Blue. What I'm going to do first is give you guys a little bit of information on the play. I will read you the press release from Langara College, and then we'll do a deep dive on my thoughts. So Cerulean Blue is a play created by Studio 58, which is the nationally renowned theater training program at Langara College, 
What I find really cool and interesting is that the play was created by an Ojibwe playwright, uh, Drew Hayden Taylor, and the two directors, so Kelsey Knashen Wavy is a proud member of the Tadasquia Cree Nation, and Cameron Peel hails proudly from the Nazca Nation. So there's a lot of indigenous representation within the creative team, which is really important um, as this play does talk a lot about indigenous stereotypes and indigenous issues. So I thought that was really cool to start off with. Next, the press release uh, from Langara College is as follows. So in Cerulean Blue, a struggling blues band is invited to play at a benefit concert in Dead Rat River, a remote First Nations community in conflict with the government authorities about land rights. Chaos ensues as the band arrives to discover that all the other acts have canceled. Throw in a little bit of romance, an all-out brawl, and plenty of wacky characters, and Cerulean Blue is a fast-moving, stereotype-smashing ride. Before I go into the plot and my thoughts, I would like to say a special congratulations to the cast of Cerulean Blue, who played the entire play with a mask on. So that was a couple hours, and, you know, if you've acted a little or have some acting experience, you know that acting is a lot about facial expressions, and it must be so difficult to have half of your face cover when you're trying to portray, you know, emotion and a specific character. So I would like to say um, that they got, that the cast at Nagara College navigated through that so well, and a special congratulations to them for that. Next, the plot. So one character that's specifically important uh, is Billy Burroughs, who is played by Isaiah Bulbear. Um, he plays a new member to the blues band, a Cerulean Blue, who gets them the gig at Dead Rat River. So he's especially important because he's kind of um, this catalyst that starts this whole thing. Um, and what happens is he accidentally dated his cousin um, a couple of years back. And so he maintains that he never knew they were related she disagrees um, and thinks that he did know. So there's a very tumultuous, very uh, antagonistic relationship there. And the reason that that's an issue is because now she is at Dead Rat River and she is now with the elder at Dead Rat River. So when they get this gig and they show up um, at this remote First Nations community, they're very, very unwelcome. So a lot of the plot was focused on this kind of weird relationship between Billy Burroughs and his ex, which I thought was, you know, funny, but kind of interesting. Um, I think they could have really focused on a lot of different things. They had ample opportunities to focus on land rights and government regulations, and instead they kind of focused on this, like, weird relationship between Billy Burroughs and his ex, um, which I thought was just kind of really irrelevant. Similarly, with regards to the fact that it was a comedic commentary, so on Indigenous uh, stereotypes, it was very funny, it was a comedic commentary, um, but if anything, in my opinion, it did perpetuate stereotypes instead of smashed any stereotypes. So when they get to Deborah River, for example, um, it's basically, a f it's described as a field with a ditch, uh, which kind of really doesn't portray remote First Nations communities um, very well. And then the elder, who is with Billy Burroughs' ex, is basically a gang member who threatens violence um, if the band cho chooses to play and doesn't leave immediately, and basically starts this all-out altercation and brawl with this blues band and starts this whole thing. So the fact that, you know, the elder, who is supposed to be the, you know, the wise, um, helpful leader of this community, is basically a gang member, really doesn't portray any specific, um, specific positive 
imagery and um, and I really don't believe that it it smashed any stereotypes there. That being said, the play was, as I mentioned, very funny. Some of the actors I would like to shout out for just having such a for doing such a good job is uh, Mary Rose Cohen, who played Buck. Uh, Buck was the bus driver who took them from the the band from Toronto to this remote First Nations community. And she did such a fantastic job, really, really funny. Um, you know, congratulations uh, to her for, for really crushing that role. Um, Isaiah Bear, as I mentioned, who plays Billy Burroughs, was also extremely funny. And so was the other main character who played Russell, uh, who is Riley Hardwick. They uh, really crushed their roles. They really portrayed their characters really well. Overall, it was so fun to see this play, to go to this play, and especially fun in person and um, they did a fantastic job. So congratulations, cast and crew at Linkara College. And that was the review of Cerulean Blue by Alex. And um, today we, I started off in, a, in the wrong foot for today's shows, but you know what? I think we're finding our rhythm now. Honestly, I just I just feel nervous for absolutely no re- reason. I think it's just like midterm season and like, you know, knowing that I, I'm coming into the studio and this is like, a great moment to just be in the studio but you know all that stress um and so now we are going to listen to one more review and that will be the review for spinning new home hey it's eva so i'm here today to talk to you about a play that i watched called spinning you home i was so lucky to go and watch it actually live and in person at the jericho arts center which is that super cute little wood building off of discovery when you're kind of going into Jericho Beach. I'd never been inside um, and it's adorable, so I was really excited. The play is running from now until October 31st if you're interested and they've got showings Thursday through Sunday. This play is written by Sally Stubbs and directed by Sarah Rogers. So here's the official short summary that they give. It's 1958 and a storm rages. Trapped inside, Sarah and Grandpa, a loner with a passion for history and spinning tales and a thirst for overproofed rum, Learn of one another as they bring to life the remarkable story of legendary gold prospectors John Caribou Cameron and his young wife, Minor Sophia Cameron. Spinning You Home celebrates a haunting chapter in BC Gold Rush history, promises that transcend death and the power of love and storytelling. Cool. So the story is kind of centered around two characters, Sarah, who's a 12-year-old girl growing up in Victoria, and her grandpa, who's 92 years old, and he's a miserable old drunk who's been forced to leave his home on Salt Spring so that Sarah's mom can look after him. Uh, he's not too happy about the loss of independence, and he's kind of a bit of a, a grumpy dude. Uh, eventually, Sarah gets Grandpa to tell him a story about Sophia and John Caribou Cameron, and the two move seamlessly between recounting and then acting out and then actually becoming these two other characters in a dual storyline. The set facilitates these transitions really beautifully, I thought, because in the first scene, it's a graveyard, and the set is composed of a tombstone and a coffin and a tree. And this set doesn't change. Um, The tombstone and the tree stay exactly where they are the whole time. So the second scene is Sarah's bedroom and involves the same pieces, which are kind of cleverly indicated to be now a wardrobe and a bed. And also a tree, but we don't need to worry about that. Um, And then this bed coffin is also used as um, a bath and a trunk and a boat and various other things. But all the while, you know the context that the original scene had been a graveyard and you can tell, obviously, it's grandpa's grave. So that that part's very interesting. This kind of reminded me of another play that I'd read uh, a couple years ago called Burning Vision by Marie Clements. 
So that story is centered around uranium and the effects that it had on different people in um, the span of a few hundred years. So some characters included the miners and watch face painters. So they used to make the faces of watches. They would paint it with uranium so it would glow in the dark. Um, and these painters would lick the tips of their paintbrushes, um, which had the uranium, which we now know is extremely carcinogenic. Anyways, um, those people and those prospectors who got rich from uranium and then the people of Nagasaki and Hiroshima who were wiped out by uranium bombs. So in Burning Vision, um, Clements kind of blurs the spatial and temporal boundaries by using the same actors to portray all those different characters across timelines and spaces. And this was kind of used to highlight a subtle similarity that each of the character groups had, um, whether it was a feeling or an experience or their position in society. And it was, it was very nuanced and really beautifully done. So highly recommend that. But I feel like the use of the double casting and spitting you home may also have been used similarly. For example, when Grandpa is acting out the role of John Caribou Cameron, he gets to be what he wishes his body could allow him, which independent, strong, and adventurous. You know, he's recently lost his independence after this injury, and now he's got to live with his daughter, and he hates that. He's such a grumpy old man and just wants to leave. He's constantly trying to run away back to Salt Spring. Um, and it seems too perfect not to be a metaphor that as Grandpa's reenacting John Cameron's journey out of Caribou, he's lugging his own coffin behind him. And you kind of, at this point, you'd almost forgotten that the first scene had very clearly been of Grandpa's grave in the cemetery. But then at this point, you're kind of snapped back to reality and you're bitterly reminded of that. Grandpa's alive and dead and John Cameron all at once. So those were just some things I was thinking about while watching this play. I tried not to give too much away because it's a very captivating show and I hope if you're interested, you'll give it a watch yourself. And there were a lot of really clever moments like that in the set design and the way that the parallels were drawn between those three temporal storylines. And it's one of those shows that you kind of just keep thinking about afterwards and realizing more fun connections. I always love that. So one last thing that I loved, which is not thematic, so I didn't really know where to talk about it in the review, but there is a third character in Spinning You Home, and that is Stevenson, John Caribou's best friend. He sits uh, illuminated behind this mesh curtain, and you see him throughout the duration of the show. He makes all the sound effects for the show, actually. He whistles, he plays guitar, he sloshes water in one of those galvanized wash tubs, and he whacks a sheet of corrugated metal to make thunder. So as much as you would think that his presence kind of breaks the reality of the play, I actually felt like it added to it. So his instruments were all things that you would find maybe on a camp in the Caribou Gold Rush, at like old-timey sort of set pieces. And at times this guy, the sound guy, was indirectly addressed actually by Sarah or Grandpa as Stevenson. So sound guy slash Stevenson also breaks the fourth wall and acknowledges the reference to himself and responds in some way to the characters, which was pretty funny in person. And also just a clever little piece, I thought, because it brought you back to reality. You know that he's the sound tech, <laughs> but he's also playing a character from the storyline of the caribou. Okay, so that's it. I really loved the play, and it was a great experience, as you can tell. I would highly recommend checking it out if you're interested. You can still grab tickets to Spinning You Home on Eventbrite or by searching for the Jericho Arts Center. The information will be up on their page. And yeah, like I said earlier, this play is running until October 31st, so you really don't want to miss it. And that was the review for Spinning You Home, uh, showing at the Jericho Arts Center until, well, basically this Sunday. So if you're interested, go see it. 
So now we're going to do a quick ad and PSA break. And when we come back, we're going to listen to an interview uh, with Amelia Pelkowski by our lovely Alex again. The Aboriginal Frontier Society is a culturally safe, peer-designed, non-judgmental place for Aboriginal peoples, their friends and their family in the downtown Eastside. It's an accessible space where Aboriginal folks can experience, learn and participate in traditional Aboriginal culture, teachings and ceremonies as part of their healing journey through life. Right now, they're accepting donations of food and warm clothing, which are needed more than ever as residents of the downtown Eastside face the challenges of COVID-19 and winter weather. If you're able to help, you can drop your donation off at 384 Main Street on weekdays between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. That is 384 Main Street. To learn more about the Aboriginal Frontier Society and other ways that you can support their work, please visit abfrontdoor.org. The haunting debut album Black Moon by Civic TV provides a cinematic backdrop, a modern-day symphony of the dark and light that is our collective reality. Take a listen to Black Moon, now available via Flemish Eye Records and on all streaming platforms. And we're back. And like I said before, now we're going to listen to a interview. And after that, we've got a few more reviews. And yeah, I hope you can, you, you're sticking around and you're enjoying the show today. Hello, CITR listeners. This is You're Back on Air with Alex. And I am here with one of the most talented mixed media artists in Vancouver, Amelia Pakowski. How are you today? Good, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so we have so much to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about your art, uh, your journey into art, and your latest collection and your exhibition from last weekend. Congratulations on what I hear was an amazing show. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank your you first so ever. It was one to remember, for sure. Absolutely. So for our non-art listeners, can you just uh, describe what it is to be a mixed-media artist? Um, so for me, I think for everyone it's a little bit different, but for me it's just a combination of using a, a bunch of different mediums. Um, so for me, I use charcoal, I use, um, I use clay, uh, I use paint, and um, it's also just a, a, a different technique as well so um but i'm sure every artist can say something else too so that's just my example of it yeah it just means you use different mediums yeah. to express your art exactly just, cool. just a different way of, of being able to express it awesome so um you have not had a linear journey with art right so you loved it when you were young um yeah. you kind of left it behind a little bit and then you returned to it as a career can you just talk to me a little bit about what actually um, pushed you towards going towards art as a career? Yeah, so um, just kind of back to the beginning. Like, I mean, I've been creating for as long as I remember, but I, I did definitely take a break in between. And I think that was mainly just um, I wanted to experience a bunch of different types of careers and, and things like that. So I kind of juggled between sales and tech and, and, and um kind of went back to sales and so forth and I think eventually 
uh, after experimenting, I um, I kind of just hit rock bottom and I realized like this isn't really what I'm made up of. Like I, it felt like something was missing in my life and I kind of went back to the basics and um, I think that's also when my spiritual journey kind of started at that point too. So I, I read a lot, um, I traveled a little bit in between, um, I meditated, I did yoga, I did anything you could possibly think of to kind of reconnect with, with mind, body, and soul. Um, so, and then I think at that point, um, actually what, what really did it too, so it was, it was one of my trips to Italy, mm. and uh, I think there was a lot of inspiration there too, just uh, just the architecture, the, the colors, the artwork itself, there, it just went on and on, and I went home, and I the first thing I did was go to an art supply store, and I bought a canvas, and I just started experimenting, I started painting, and um uh, unfortunately, at that time, I didn't really go public with it, but that was kind of the start of it. So that was around five years ago. Uh, and then this collection, so this collection started up in probably 2020. And um, that was, that all just started off with an idea. And I called a, a friend of mine, and, um, and I was like, you know, I have this idea in my head. I don't know what it looks like, but I have the name of the collection, and, and it just went from there. So uh, it, it, I guess it was just the right time, right feeling, and, and together it kind of molded it together. I love that. I love that you just went to Italy especially, just found so much inspiration, just had to kind of create art. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the best. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, the best art comes from just like a need to express yourself, I feel like, you know? Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. A lot of emotion, a lot of feeling and um and sometimes you don't even really know where it comes from and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. I don't know if my listeners, if you heard a cat meowing, that would be little devil dot <laughs> that's here just looking for some attention, but she's uh she's gone now. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for describing that journey. You mentioned that you had a spiritual journey. Can we talk a little bit more about that? So you were traveling, you were meditating, self-healing. So you mentioned yeah. you went to Italy. Did you go anywhere else? Like what kind of inspired you throughout your travels, your meditation? Um, so I think to travel, like there was a couple other places. Like I went to Poland where I'm originally from. So um, that was part of it too. But I think Italy was what really, really did it. And I think, again, it was the, the architecture and um the, there were so many galleries and um, there was a lot of street work too and just, just seeing the, the colors and being around that atmosphere really, really uh, inspired me from there, I guess. That's how it, all, how it all happened. And did you incorporate um, this journey like into your art? Like, Does that have some feature within your art? Uh, so that was more with the collection. No, I shouldn't say collection, but that was when I first started experimenting um, five years ago, which I never really went public with it. And at that time, my art was very colorful and very bold. Um, and uh, so total different style. But, um, yeah, it's more like that. Yeah. And you mentioned that you use a lot of charcoal. So your, 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 your work is a lot more like black and white now. So is that just yeah. an evolution as you as, as an artist or just kind of like you're experimenting with different styles or experimenting with different styles? Um, and also, yeah, I don't know how to explain this. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It's okay. <laughs> I don't want to explain this. Um, but I think, yeah, so experimenting with different styles, but also just, um, 
I think it's associated with the name of the collection too, so the light in between, because mm-hmm. um, that that's inspired by the Japanese term called ma, which is the the power of the space in between. So that's why I use a lot of of white uh, in it, and I think um, charcoal just really kind of brings that whiteness out, just makes it more bold. Um, and clear. So I think that that's what it was too. And I, I used to work with charcoal before, like back in my, my days, back when I was like in high school and so forth. And so I, I kind of want to reconnect with that. So it was a calling. It was more of a calling. Definitely. <laughs> I don't know if that really answers the question. No, definitely. Um, so I do want to talk to you about Ma. So um, your first solo, your first solo exhibition was this weekend, as I mentioned. Congratulations, that's amazing. Can we talk a little bit about how it went? So it was a three-day kind of uh, exhibition, right? Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, the first night was um, just opening night, so it was uh, it was invite only, and um, uh, my expectations were really low. I I didn't really know what to expect going into it. Um, and then the Saturday and Sunday was open to the public. But, um, yeah, I mean, the whole experience was just amazing. I, you know, people coming to see my work and talking about my work and being able to express it and so forth was just was beautiful. It was just an amazing, amazing experience. And I think um, now that I had my first one, <laughs> I've broken the seal, and now I want to do many more. So it feels like it's just the beginning. Oh, I love that. And absolutely, it's just the beginning. Um, your collection, as you mentioned, uh, is about or inspired by Ma. So it's, uh, I love this one um, line from your website here. So nothing is perfect. Everything is perfect, right? So there's no shame in nature. So why should it exist in ourselves? I just thought that was so gorgeous, like such a like wonderful um, idea and, and uh, expression. So can you talk to me a little bit more like how you came up with that and how you kind of chose Ma as your inspiration for your collection? Yeah, so, um, so I think just the whole collection was inspired by nature and just um, and my fascination with the female form. Um, and I think those two are, are connected in so many ways because I think if we connect within the beauty in nature, we connect within the beauty in ourselves. And um, so I think my, my whole um, idea behind it is just to inspire as well and, um, and to, to feel more confident in your own skin, I guess, especially as, as women, we, we deal with a lot of <laughs> insecurities and struggles as a whole. And I think, you know, um, feeling comfortable in our own skin makes makes all the difference in the world. So I think that that was kind of the whole idea behind it. And also, um, you know, just the, the female form as a whole, like you get to see it in photography as well. It's just our bodies are just fascinating. Every crease, every bend, every fold. Um, it's just so beautiful. So I think um, I, I was able to, to express that with a couple of those um, body figure forms, which are done in charcoal, um, and also just uh, some clay designs as well. But then again, that's associated to, to the collection name, which is the light in between. Um, so again, that's that's basically based off the concept of, of ma. It's a, a Japanese term, and it's it's the power of the space in between, and that's whether it's a, you know um, an experience, a, a belief, or an idea. I think. Um, you know, the world is a matrix of, of, of different types of relationships. And I think in art, that's interpreted as a, a power of the, of the space in the between, like a, an area where it's full of possibilities. 
Yeah. Nothing is more important, right, than your relationship with yourself as well. And I think in, like, this society right now, we're getting so bombarded every single day with things that we need to change and fix and do better about, especially women with women's bodies, and to sort of to love yourself just the way you are, to know that your body can run and jump and love. It's so important and it's so, like, integral. Yeah, exactly. It's all connected, and and I think that's just the whole idea behind it. And again, that is that is connected with um, nature in so many ways. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that uh, charcoal is something that you used to work with a lot, and you work with it now. Can, for your next collection, are we going to see a lot more charcoal, or are we going back towards colors? What do we think? Um, so that's a little hard to it's hard to say, but um, I think for the next one. Um, obviously I want to continue to create as much as I can. Again, I think I've broken that seal, so I want to keep on going for as long as I can. Um, but I think the next one might be a combination of everything you've seen so far. So, um, so charcoal, paint, um, clay possibly, but it could be a combination. It could be completely different. Um, I did dabble in a little bit in jewelry, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind kind of going back into that and maybe doing some, some designs, um, for that. And just experimenting with it, um, but again, it's really hard to tell because it's it's one of those things where it's just in the moment, you know, whatever I'm feeling and and drawn to. Um, my work again is very experimental. It's unique. It's minimal, um, but it's hard to say. It could be completely different for the next one. But regardless, I'm excited. Have you started on a new collection, or are you kind of just? enjoying the the glow of the newest one and your exhibition i'm still i'm still uh processing it i guess um so it's been yeah it's been it's been a week since the the show and uh it's been busy since then too so i I think i'm just settling in now so i haven't started anything new i haven't really gotten any like major major ideas so we'll see um but uh yeah again i'm I'm just excited to see what's going to come Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm so excited to see you as well. Um, do you have any advice for our listeners who kind of want to pursue art as a full-time career but might be a little bit scared, a little bit unsure of how to kind of really put themselves out there? Yeah, so I think I think giving it some time I think is, is, is key because obviously it's, it's taken me a really long time to, to go public with with my art um and that's also associated to my own securities of like fear and doubt and so forth which um uh which I've kind of expressed in 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 some of my pieces called body series so I think yeah giving yourself time and, and kind of looking within but also you know I think key too is making sure that um you're getting the the finances that you need to support your career I think that that is key um, because you don't want to stress making money. You want, you know, like I think with with art, you just want to be able to. You don't want that stress of like how how is how is money going to come in. You don't want to put that upon yourself. So I think as long as you're you're kind of secure in that department, and whether you need a part time job to to support your your art career or. Um, or whether, you know, you need to do other stuff on the side, whatever it is that you, you need to do. But as long as you take that off, I think that, that takes a lot of the pressure off yeah. in a way. So, um, so time and making sure that you're, you're, you're somewhat financially secure in that department and, and, and then the rest will, will come. But, um, 
yeah, I think just just also kind of connecting within, I think, is 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 also key. Um, but yeah, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that helps. Absolutely. Out of your last collection, so your newest collection, is there one piece that just you absolutely love above all else? Your favorite, favorite piece? Um, so I think my favorite one is She. So that that's part of um, the body series one, and, and that's where I'm using parts of my body to, to imprint on, on the canvas itself. Um, and for me, it's just a vulnerable, vulnerable feeling. And it, it was also... Um, inspired from the book called Art and Fear, which is one of one of the most amazing books. If, if you've never heard of it, I highly recommend it. Um, but it's extremely inspiring in, in a lot of ways because um, it talks about the struggles that artists deal with. Like, why is, how do, where's art made? How, where does it come from? How do we stop ourselves from making art and all those sorts of things? And, and, um, and so for me, I've used actual like quotes and words uh, from that book, from that book specifically, but also just just words that kind of juggle through my mind quite a bit as well. And by um, by writing those down onto the canvas and by imprinting my body, it was like a way for me to let go of that fear and that doubt and everything that I've dealt with over the years. So that one is a very special piece to me as a whole. So I, I um, yeah, if I had to pick one, that would that would be that would be the one. She gotcha. Yeah, for sure. Um, to wrap up here, thank you so, so much for seeing me today and talking to me about your art. It's such a special collection, and I, I really do love it. And I, I urge our listeners to go take a look at your website. Speaking of, how can our listeners find you? Can you, uh, can you just talk about how social media, yeah. your website? That'd be great. So I have a, I have a website, so it's just AmeliaPokoski.com, and um, my Instagram is the same, so AmeliaPokoski. <laughs> So you can find me on, on both of those uh, sites. And, um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Awesome. So <laughs> and thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for meeting with me. Uh, listeners. And now we're going to go into uh, a few more reviews. We're going, we've got two more reviews. And then we're going to take another ad and PSA. So we're first going to listen to JJ's review of The Scary on 61st, which was a film that um, was shown at VIF. It's a horror film. I have opinions on it, but I want to hear JJ's review. And then we have Jade's review of the UBC Artivism 2021 Crane the Self event. Um, Yeah. And when we're back, we're going to have one last review to just finish the show on the right foot. Hi, I'm JJ Mizukatelli, and this is my review of The Scary of 61st, which I was able to see at the Vancouver International Film Festival uh, about two weeks back now. I don't really know how to start this review because I want to start by talking about what worked, and unfortunately, really nothing did. It, it's, a, it's a really bad movie, and then it really, really really sucks to say that um it was directed by uh dasha nekrasova it was written by the same woman dasha nekrasova as well as uh madeline quinn and it stars uh quinn as noel and betsy brown as addy the the plot essentially revolves around uh roommates noel and addy moving into an apartment in manhattan that they soon discover was the former like sex dungeon of Jeffrey Epstein. And 
I, I guess if I was going to describe it in, in like short words, it would be Polanski flavored LaCroix. It's got, it's very reminiscent of movies like Eyes Wide Shut and Rosemary's Baby, but it really fails to deliver on that outside of just kind of making references towards those movies. Um, and I want to give it lenience because it's like, it's everyone involved's first movie. No one in this project has done anything outside of this. And it's impressive that they got involved in a number of international film festivals. This got seen by a lot of people, and they won an award in Berlin. But I can't, in good faith, give it all that, give it more leniency than I feel it deserves. It's got a really interesting palette to it, where it very clearly feels like an A24 uh, filter. It was shot on 16mm film, which kind of gives it that sort of muted colors, uh, film grainy look. And it's very tactile. It's very... That, at least I will say, is like an interesting aesthetic, um, and one that's very popular right now. That A24 indie look is really good, but it doesn't feel all that intentional outside of just saying, this is what people like. And I I think that kind of just follows the, the film through its, the whole journey that it goes through. Um, the meta text of the movie, like the concept, is kind of interesting. The idea of taking very clear inspiration from Polanski, a known sexual predator, and using that to confront the real-life horror of Jeffrey Epstein, also a sexual predator, and taking that and turning it into this story told by women, and sort of taking all of, like, the works of these terrible men and, like, turning them on their head and making them into something that maybe could be a positive force in the world is an interesting concept for a horror movie, and, like, there is... There are things in there that I think could work, but I think outside of that, like, it just doesn't make good on that concept. In the same vein, a lot of the film is structured around confronting, like, conspiratorial paranoid behavior, which has inhabited our zeitgeist for the past uh, three to four years, especially. And I think that, again, that's a great topic for a horror movie to take on, and it just doesn't deliver um, part of it falls down to the actresses where the first third of the movie it feels like they didn't really know what they were going for they didn't really know who they were playing and the, the rest of the movie after about i'd say 20 to 30 minutes that you can tell they kind of find their feet and they they move forward and they definitely get better and by the end it's it's certainly more believable than the beginning but i i went back and watched the first 20 minutes just to be sure i had it right like maybe i was mistaken and it's just it feels like bad high school theater. It feels like kids who read their lines the day before and don't know them, and they're just kind of winging it. And I, I wish so much of me wanted this movie. To I love the sort of indie darling film grain aesthetic that is really popular right now. I love the concept, but the writing doesn't work. The characters aren't interesting. The acting, especially those first 30 minutes, is really terrible. And it, again, it picks up as it goes on. But And I, I, I really just think that so much of the movie feels like if some of my friends in high school wanted to make their version of Eyes Wide Shut. And like, that's great for a fun concept to do with your friends. But I think at this level, when you're at an international film festival, there has to be more than just that fun concept. And it doesn't deliver on that. And quite a few pretty good reviews for this uh, for this movie. Uh, Slant Magazine gave it like a three and a half out of four, or a 
two and a half out of four, better than average score. And I, I really just think that it pulls inspiration from these really great psychological horror. But I think if I wanted to watch a movie that has that Roman Polanski-esque psychological horror thriller aspect, but with an A24 indie filter, I just watch Hereditary. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to, is that there is very much a place for this type of movie, I think, in today's indie circuit. And I would love to see it, but this isn't it. And that's really disappointing. Part of me really hopes that the director and screenwriter take the script and take the idea and it kind of gets worked around a bit and kind of gets shopped around and gets edited and toned up and then gets remade I or just turned into a different project that works a bit better because I think there is something here at its very base level and I would like to see the people involved continue to get work because I do think that by the end a lot of like the actresses the director everyone kind of knew what they were doing by the end and it's only because they didn't have money for reshoots that they couldn't redo the beginning and make at least the movie flow. It wouldn't have helped, I think, a lot of the structural issues, but I, I think then at least, you know, you'd have something that resembled a two out of five. Um, but I think for right now, yeah, just as it stands, it has to be a one out of five. That's going to be all for this review. Hope you enjoyed listening, and hopefully I'll be able to come back next week with something a little more positive. That'll be all. Hi everyone, it's Jay here, and today I am going to be reviewing um, Queer Coded Slam and Spoken Word, which is basically an event I went to um, Wednesday, October 13th. Um, it's basically part of a larger um, festival, the UBC Artivism Festival uh, 2021, Queering the Self. So the show was hosted by Angelica Solomon, and it took place at the Haida House, which is part of the Museum of Anthropology's outdoor exhibit. So, um, I really liked the space. It was very cozy. It felt very safe. Um, the Haida House is basically like a wooden structure. There were, you know, fairy lights, candles, um, and the sound, the way it kind of carried the sound during the performances, what I found very likable so it was there was some poetry there was some slam poetry but there was also a lot of music there was also an open mic at the end of the show which I missed because it started to run a bit late and you know yeah I just needed to leave and but I wish I saw it because I was actually kind of curious to see what people would do at an open mic I haven't I mean, it's been a long year. I haven't seen any open mics, so I was, you know, just excited at the very idea. Yeah, so it was kind of, there was kind of a bit of socializing before the event started, you know, everybody was just kind of getting to know each other, and Chantal, she, I guess she played bass, and um, yeah, the with the audience, there was a lot of, like, call and response, you know, it was a very interactive audience, which I really appreciated. I don't know if that's like common amongst most slam poetry um, performances, but I really liked that we were kind of encouraged to engage with the artists. And just going off on a tangent here, um, artivism, basically the word connotes that a lot of the artists that were performing during this event were also 
people that were involved in some sort of activism outside of their um, identity as a performer. And quite often they use their performance as a way to, you know, carry along the message that they focus on within their activism. I was thinking about what it would have been like if it was very queer. It was very, very queer. And I was often thinking about what this would have been like if, I guess, if it wasn't a, like a queer audience, like I feel like it would have been so different. But I think it really kind of leaned into creating a space for more queer voices of different backgrounds, um, which I thought was amazing. Then there was also Namita. Her poetry kind of explored a lot of ideas of like Hinduism and I really liked her outfit so I'm just gonna say that I really loved the top she was wearing. It was very spiritual and kind of delved into ideas of God and yeah and mangoes. She talked about mangoes for a bit. Um, In another segue I'm gonna give a shout out to two Instagram accounts at UBC Arts and Culture and at UBC Exposure to learn more about the festival and other arts and culture events that will be um, organized by uh, UBC Arts and Culture. There was also Tawaham. They are Two-Spirit Land Protector and they performed some music and poetry. It was very anti-colonial, very, very like intense. I kind of really liked it. It was, uh, I don't really know what vibe I was getting from it. It was very, like, I, I, I'm not really good at categorizing genres. I want to say rock music and heavy metal and, like, I guess punk, I guess, kind of in that circle of musical. And I feel like it really hit the artivism because, like, I didn't really understand what the term meant until their performances. It was very poetic and very much about their work as an activist. And then the final performance that I saw was Eben Empress. Um, Eben Empress is a NMC. I guess she raps and plays keyboard and she was also accompanied by a drummer. And just also giving another Instagram shout out. It's at Afro Van Connect. Um, that's where you can see some of the work that Eben Empress does when she's not performing. So now to give my thoughts. I mean, I'm still, I guess I'm still trying to piece it together just because this was my first ever slam poetry thing. And I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't really hear everything, but I think I really, really miss live music and meeting new bands and performers. And honestly, it doesn't really matter what was being said as far as, you know, that's what art is about. It's just about the feeling. And I definitely got the feeling. I definitely recognize that this event was definitely centering the voices of activists and people who are passionate about certain humanitarian issues and yeah also just the talent right it's not just poets but it's also like really talented musicians that make music and I love music and you know just I'm just gonna be keeping an eye open for all of these performers and 
maybe check out some more you know slam poetry events I, like I maybe I just need to get more into slam poetry maybe this is a sign to do that so thank you for listening and once again I just want to thank UBC Arts and Culture for doing this and for creating this platform and just like not just the platform but the space for like queer artists to kind of be there and be in their truest form so yeah thank you if you attended a federal indian day school now is your time to make your claim if you experience harm at your school you may be eligible to receive a check for compensation remember you need to make your claim before july 13th 2022 see if your school is on the list and get free legal help start at indiandayschools.com or call 1-844-539 3815. Claim what's yours. Celebrating human ingenuity, resilience, and grit. Tell a Story Hive's Game Changers Documentary Edition is here. Calling all local emerging filmmakers in BC and Alberta. Story Hive is offering 30 grants of $20,000 each to capture stories of local game changers that are making their community a better place. Send in your application to storyhive.com apply by November 10th. If you have a story to share, we want to hear from you. And we are uh, nearing the end of our show. We're going to end the show with a interview with Michelle Nguyen by Alex once more. Uh, and that will be our show for today. So I hope you enjoy this, this last interview. So, uh, hello, listeners. You are back on with Alex, and I have a very special guest to introduce you to today. Uh, she is a Vancouver-based, originally from Toronto, but Vancouver-based now artist who does a lot of canvas work, paperwork, and clay work. She currently has an exhibition at um, the... Um, Beaujou Gallery on Granville Street, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. I was there this morning to see the art. I'm so excited to introduce Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Just chilling. I have a blanket over me, so I'm nice and cozy when nice I do this cozy. interview. Absolutely. Oh, you have to have a blanket on you. Get nice and cozy, know, especially with this weather. Fire. I know. Disgusting. Oh. I, I checked the weather forecast for the next week, and it's just like 80% chance, 70% chance of rain. I'm like, okay, sure. This is your life now. you got to start taking that vitamin D. Yes, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome, awesome. Um, so, yes, thank you so much for, for coming on here um, and talking to us at the CITR. Uh, we're so thrilled to have you here. So just to deep dive in, um, you are, I have to say as well, a UBC graduate, which we love to yeah. have our alums on here. Um, not only do we love to have our alums on, but we love to see alums who are pursuing their passions and doing so successfully. So you are reassuring to all of the students at UBC right now. Yeah, I hope I can do that for you guys. <laughs> You're doing right by us. You're doing right by us. <laughs> um, wonderful. So, as I mentioned, you do do uh, canvas, paper, and and clay, right? So, what is your favorite method? Uh, I guess painting is just by meat and potatoes, and I'm the best at that. But I really like to get my hands on a little bit of everything, so I don't get too bored with gotcha. it. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's nice to yeah. move between mediums, I guess. It just helps jog your brain sometimes if you end up in like a, you know, brain fog. Yeah. It's just a nice, easy way. A little creative rut, for sure. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, were you You're always... the first person I've spoken to all day, so like, oh. I'm learning how to use my words again. Thank you. <laughs> Is that I'm an artist worried. thing or, or a pandemic thing, do you think? Uh, it's a bit of both. Yeah. I don't think I got I was very social to begin with, so it's, it hasn't been too bad for me, to be honest. To be honest? Yeah, I feel like the, the introverts are like, yeah, this is just life. This is, welcome this to is my life. This is our life already. Nothing's changed. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not, the, that's not so bad. I, I've also really enjoyed spending some time at home. Um, do you produce your art at home, or do you have, like, a studio as well? Oh, God, no. I need a separate space so okay. I can live two separate lives. That's fair. Too messy over there. I need to have, like, a clean home space. And I tried to mix the two before. I used to, like, paint in my bedroom, and that wasn't good for my lungs or my mental health. That's fair. That's fair. And have you always known, I mean, I know you did environmental design at UVC, um, mm-hmm. but did you always know that you wanted to kind of go into art, pursue art full time, or, or is this something that triggered you to be like, this? it's now or never, it's time, I gotta do this? I mean, it was something I've always enjoyed, and I feel like a lot of people around that age, they're like, that's not like a tangible, reasonable career path, that's silly, let's go do architecture or something where you can actually, you know, get some health care and get a steady paycheck. So I tried to go down that path, but then I think painting just always found its way into my life, no matter how busy I got. So I'm just like, okay, I don't know. I, I guess I've been, I'm tired of running away from you. Let's, let's just hang out for a while and see what we can get done here. See what happens. Yeah. I think a lot yeah. of creative people get told that a lot, you know, as, as a writer myself, primarily, I get told that a lot. Oh, you can't, you know, you can't be a writer for life. Like you have to be, you know, be practical and, but like at the same time, if you love it and it's something you want to do, you're going to do well at it. You're going to pursue it in a, in a constructive way, right? So absolutely, you got you to gotta dive into your passions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is not your first solo exhibition at the um, Boju, Bo, Boji, sorry, Boji, <laughs> Gallery, yeah. Boji, okay. uh, Boji Gallery uh, on Granville, which is a great space um, for anyone who does want to go check out uh, the art. Um, how have you found your exhibition during COVID time? Were you a little bit nervous or, or was it okay for you? I mean, the last exhibition I had was in the Bogie in Toronto, and that was at the very beginning of the pandemic. So, like, that didn't really pan out, or I just felt weird, like, encouraging people to go see the show when they're like, there's this new virus, and we don't know how people get it, and it just felt really wrong to be like, go see my show. Very self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah. So just, like, trying to, like, not talk about that, and obviously we've all changed individually a lot through COVID, and I feel like that really shows in my work, and I just feel like I'm on a, a different place now, and it's nice to be able to show that, like, a tangible and, like, visual way is what I've always enjoyed about painting. You can really show your own growth on the outside, you know? Definitely, definitely. Uh, well, let's talk about your newest collection then. So um, I'm just going to read uh, what you kind of mentioned about the collection. So you said, uh, my current body mm-hmm. of work looks to encourage the viewer to think and speak openly about human mortality and acknowledge death as an inevitability. So it's quite like a serious topic you're, you're tackling there. Um, what triggered kind of this, 
this thought process, this kind of collection? Was it the pandemic or was it something that you were thinking about beforehand? Um, it's definitely something I've been thinking about beforehand, but obviously the pandemic kind of amplified those kind of messages and themes in a way that they weren't before. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will have an experience when they have like one of the first deaths in their family. And for my family, they were very avoidant of the topic. They didn't really want to talk about it or like grieve in an open way. We were always encouraged to like, you know, look strong if you are weak and if you cry, like people will destroy you in that kind of dramatic fashion. So it was just one of those things where they like, don't want to answer your questions about death and grief and they kind of push it away. But you, you're you like, why don't you want to talk about that? Like now I'm just like curious, like what is it about this thing that's so hard for you? And then it kind of just began from there, I would say, yeah. for me personally. Cool. So like uh, really tackling these kind of issues head on and not kind of throwing things under the rug. Yeah, I saw it as like a, something that definitely affected me largely so and then I just got curious about like oh you know grandma's embalmed body like what is how does that work or like the history of like funeral homes and cremation I was just so interested in those morbid things and that's how I kind of like to it and then just ate up a bunch of literature about that kind of stuff as I grew older yeah and it's something I've always always found a way into my work, like reflecting on it now. I'm just like, oh, it's always been there, that fascination with death. And now I finally have maybe the experience and the words to really like put it forth in the show, hopefully in a cohesive way, because I feel like I've always been struggling to say those certain things. But obviously you have to be like, oh, am I going to be come off like too, too morbid? Like, do people actually want to have this conversation? I don't want to make people uncomfortable, but I still want to engage people with this topic. Right. No, for sure. I think the piece that really spoke to me, that really encompassed this idea of, like, mortality and, and um, tackling things, like, head-on was Snowdrop. I really, really loved that piece of work. It's so beautiful. Um, and, you know, there's, like, the decapitated Medusa head with the spiders and uh-huh. there's the skull and there's... You know, like the kind of like ghostly um, creatures, and it just really showcased that the kind of idea of transition and that change is inevitable mm-hmm. and things like that. I loved that piece of work, so yeah, I think that was one of my favorites for sure of your new collection. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, while we're talking about death and like quite like more like you said morbid and, and grim circumstances, on the flip side of that, like your art is so vibrant, so colorful. So is that just kind of how you pre- like how you present art? Like you're quite a colorful person, or were you trying to kind of talk about? Were you trying to to encompass something with that? Talk about something well, dark with like, light. Yeah. Yeah. I think just because Western society has taught us that death is a very morbid thing and to avoid talking about it, I think can be a, an actually really beautiful thing to reflect on. Uh, someone who struggled with like a lot of anxiety and depression, like. I've come to understand that the only thing that I really know that's going to happen in my life, like everything else is just up in the air, chaos. Yeah. The only thing I know is going to happen is like, I'm going to die one day. And there's like some sort of comfort I kind of get from that, knowing that how there's like a lot of possibility in between everything else. Like, obviously no one was predicting that a pandemic would happen, but look at us now. And just like, I don't know, maybe there's so much, that we can't even comprehend. There's just this one truth that's going to happen to all of us, and maybe if we reflect on it, we can just be, I don't know, more understanding of one another and just, like, 
live more full and nuanced lives, perhaps. Yeah, more colorful lives because this is something that's going to happen, right? Like, I think yeah. when I saw, for example, your your birthday um, cake or your your celebration yeah. cake, like that for me really came, like it really came into my mind, like okay, so it's like a celebration of life, um, at like through the lens of death and kind of instead of seeing mm-hmm. it something that's just like an awful thing that happens to all of us, yeah. Yeah, I think also with that painting snowdrop, or like even in a lot of the paintings in that show, there's like the suggestion that despite something being gone or dead, there there's there can be life to spout from that, right? And that's like a very natural, cyclical way that life moves that we maybe don't want to acknowledge too much because it's a difficult topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So your work is it's it's so abstract, right? You've, there's a lot of different elements within your work, um, and I just wonder where you get your inspiration from. Was it kind of your environmental design degree? Uh, as I do see a lot of climate change elements in there. There's mm-hmm. um, Greek mythology elements in there. So kind of where do you get their, your inspiration from for your art? Well, I just try to absorb as much as I can around the world. I'm just hungry for knowledge. I'm always excited to learn about new things and I don't want to limit myself based on like I don't know maybe I just want to focus on climate change I just want to focus on this part like I can make it cohesive I want my art to really reflect the sort of person I can be and I'm more than you know one thing and so is everyone else and just to really encapsulate that in a painting and just like it just keeps the work interesting for myself as well because I don't necessarily plan it out at the very beginning it kind of just like kind of grows as I go along I think to sometimes to plan anything even like outside of a painting in life shit never goes the way you want it to and I'm just like oh all right sometimes you just gotta make the most with what you have at this moment absolutely absolutely um, to go maybe with, like a little bit more specific because I love this one piece it's the um mm-hmm. the four course uh, yeah, I love that one too. Yeah. My so uh, Dionysus, for all of the non-Greek mythology nerds out there, is the god of uh, of wine, uh, of bountifulness, and, and ecstasy. So, and he's one of my favorite Greek gods. Uh, I just think he'd be like a really fun friend to have around. I think like I would oh, want to yeah. hang out with him, right? Like he just seems cool. Um, so I, I love. I don't know if I would like trust him to pick me up from the airport. But, like I would party <laughs> with him. No, I wouldn't either. But he would be like no. the kind of guy I'd invite to a party, you know? Like he'd be oh, like, yeah, 100%. Right? Um, so this one piece, kind of, let, let, talk to me about like, the process of, like, creating this piece. Where did you come up with the inspiration? And, like, what was the thinking behind the process of it? Uh, I think, it, for me, when I started painting, I just, like, find one sort of image or symbol or focal point I really want to focus on. So for me, it was the two roosters fighting up on top. So I just started with that and then kind of did, like, Every time I kind of just step back and just figure out where I want to go next from there. And honestly, to some degree, I'm just like painting all the things that I've been craving and I'm hungry for because I'm like sitting in the studio eating Lara bars and like drinking Gatorade and like, (laughs) I don't know, having these fantasies of like these lush dinners that maybe one day I can have again. Because also like that idea of like a banquet is such a pre-COVID thing, like a buffet. I don't know if that shit's ever going to exist again, right? God, no, yeah. What do you think about it, right? How did we let people just, like, touch the same spoon and, like, breathe on our food in a buffet? It's crazy. I miss it. I miss those days. I do, too. (laughs) Wild West. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I definitely see that there's, you know, there's lobsters there. There's uh, oysters. It's definitely a feast. Um, with regards to the roosters, um, the, so the roosters play a part in a lot of your paintings. And uh-huh. it's just such an um, interesting, like, unique thing. I don't usually see a lot of roosters represented in, in art. Can you talk to me a little bit about what, why roosters, why that's a thing for your, for your art? So I guess two things initially, like, in a very shallow way, I'm the year of the rooster, 1993. So I feel a connection. I've always felt a connection with the bird. Yeah. Uh, on another level, one thing I know quite well about my father is like his childhood dabbling in cockfighting when he was living in Vietnam and that's something he would always tell stories about and I think recently I was listening to some podcasts about like animal domestication and they were talking about chickens and how initially we bred them for fighting for cockfighting as opposed to like meat and eggs which is what I initially thought and for some reason the singular fact kind of like I don't know like I did like a 360 in my head. I'm like, what? That's so crazy. Like, what? Yeah. And I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And it's just like trying to dig, trying to like es- excavate these ideas and trying to figure out like, why am I so obsessed with this idea? And like, what does it mean to me? So I just like started doing more readings about cockfighting and it just, I just became more and more interested in it as I went along. Interesting. I didn't know that either. So they were initially bred for fighting and not for food. Yeah, like, they didn't have TV, so I guess you need entertainment somehow. Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, I haven't done, like, so much extensive reading where I could be like, oh, I'm, like, an expert on cockfighting, ask me anything. <laughs> but there was this one essay I was reading uh, about this white anthropologist who went to Bali in the 1950s, and he just talks about his experience with this tiny village and, like, how they experience cockfighting and how it's like this very communal thing. And in this one instance where he went, they were like raising money to like build a school, these people in this community through cockfighting and how like these men, it's like mostly a male dominated sport, even though like gender roles were very like, very flexible in his recounting of this experience in this village. Uh, these men would like raise these cocks and like, treat them really tenderly even if I like bred them for fighting they would like feed them like a special diet and like bathe them in like the special bath with like some herbs and stuff that you would like bathe the newborn in and like massage its legs and like these men would just like stand around talking about cockfighting and I asked my dad about it and he told me how he would like breed cocks as well for fighting and like how he would like tuck his cock in that night and like made sure it was nice and warm what? and just like would take it out like a dog and let it run around and like he really like these men like really really are affectionate and caring about these cocks that they use for fighting and there's just like this really crazy like contrast of ideas there that it was I'm just trying really hard just to hold it and to juggle those two ideas together and just like one of those instances where you realize like there's a lot of nuance in this world and you know everything's so polarized these days and even though you know that it's so hard to hold those two ideas in your head at the same time right yeah and it's just like one of those instances where i'm like oh here it is here it is like these two things that i didn't think could like exist side by side do in this one instance and there's something very beautiful there for me personally 
That was a roller coaster of a story, I think. There were so many things that I didn't expect you to say, and then I was just like, oh, okay, yeah. That's such an interesting, um, like, research that you've done a little bit and, like, an anecdote and yeah. stuff. That's so cool, yeah. I'm so excited to learn more about it. Like, I'm, I'm probably going to be painting some more chickens in the future. Yeah, I think I might do I'm a little so bit of research, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, that's absolutely insane. Um, but... To, okay, so yeah, to get back to um, a little bit of your work there, because we can go into uh, into yeah. rooster talk for, for a while, I think. But um, so Mother Figure and Koi Pond, I believe, are two um, canvas paintings that were um, inspired by work on social media that you saw. Do you get a lot yeah. of uh, inspiration from social media? Is that how you get a lot of your, your, your pieces? social media is as inspiration for actual art as well like you know you, you would never think about that when you just post a picture of of you know a lake or or, or whatever during your daily day um yeah. that it could be like that someone like an artist someone really like um does this passionately could look at your your picture and think wow i can make this into something awesome and unique mm-hmm. yeah cool i think it's also important just to like realize there's no such thing as like bad or good taste there's only like individual subjective taste yeah and there's no such thing as like lot like high or low art and if you get some inspiration from like watching those real housewives of salt lake city like why not true why the hell not who's telling you like you can't get inspiration from things that are deemed shallow by like popular media true and there's a reason why those things are so uh so um not famous, well, famous, but so well, well received, right? Yeah, it's like there's a reason these things exist, and it's important to analyze those things because they don't exist in a vacuum. Like we want this. There's something about our nature that deems or like allows this thing to exist, and there's something very interesting about that, right? Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up too too much of your time, but I do have a couple uh, of just ending questions here for you. Um, I like to ask sure. this of artists, especially as you're, you know, a UBC alum. Um, I like to ask this of artists who are doing, you know, their work uh, professionally, who are, you know, quite successful. And um, I, I think there's a lot of artists out there, maybe students as well, who who may be a little bit scared, a little bit nervous to actually dabble in it as a full time thing. Um, so do you have any advice for our listeners who might want to kind of take that leap um, and, and pursue it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's any. <laughs> I think work is important, hard work is important, and I just want people to also understand that I don't pay full-time because I also work at two restaurants right now as well because I don't feel like I can depend on art for a stable income. And I've, I've always been someone who, like, needs to always be working like a shark or I will die. Yeah. I don't know. It's part <laughs> of me that always needs to be busy because uh, I'm not very social, that kind of helps me just stay focused in the studio. Submit your work to shows, to online contests. Sometimes it's just like finding the right person, like the one person to see your work. 
to make something happen for you. Um, be nice. Be a, don't be a jerk. <laughs> be kind. Be nice. That's always a good advice. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, I think that's always good advice. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I'm also just a lady. I, I feel like I don't. I don't know what to tell people. I'm just. I'm just figuring shit out too, right? I think we all always are, even you know our most successful yeah. are still just kind of figuring it out, right? Absolutely. Always. Um, to wrap up here, where can our listeners see your art, um, find out more information about your art, and any upcoming exhibitions that you might have? So your website, if you have one, and oh, I, mean, I know you have one. So your website, if you want to um, yeah. plug that in your in your social media. Yes. So you can catch my show Water Features at the Boji Gallery on Granville till October 30th. Uh, my website is Michelle Wing. All right. Well, thank you so much again for spending our t- spending some time with me today. I love talking about art, and uh, and your exhibition is, is just so interesting and so very very cool. Um, there's still a couple days for our listeners if you are interested in taking it out uh, at the Boji Gallery. Um, go ahead and check it out. I highly recommend. Oh, thanks so much. And that is our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada's Radio Meters program. Hello, you are tuned into Research Review on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people at UBC. My name is Aliyah Mary, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Gurman Gill. Each week on Research Review, we interview a researcher who is affiliated with the UBC community and discuss some of their latest work and findings and how they relate to broader issues in society. Uh, today we have Dr. Leah Karagata. Um, she's on Research Review today. She is an associate professor and PhD program chair at the UBC School of Social Work. And we'll be talking about her research on lone mother-led families. It's a pleasure to have you on to the podcast today. Thank you very much, Gaman. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure. Uh, so, um, as you mentioned, I'm an associate prof in the School of Social Work here at UBC. Um, my research um, has spanned perhaps about... Um, 15 years with a, a similar focus on um, single, single moms, moms and uh, their families and some of their uh, difficult economic circumstances. Um, before coming to UBC in January, I was a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, uh, and my research has generally been national in scope with um, research sites in Vancouver, in Toronto, and at times in St. John's, uh, Newfoundland. So um, my my research with single moms and my focus on single moms came about um, in the late 90s when there was a real change in how social assistance was allocated. And single parent-led families went from being able to get a special kind of higher level of benefit to being classed with everybody else who was on social assistance. Uh, And so there was a work requirement. Well, if you're a single person on welfare and there's a work requirement, you have many less obstacles to try to get a job than if you're a single parent. Uh, And so we were really concerned that people were going to be left in a situation where they were going to have a very difficult time either finding adequate childcare and maybe putting their kids at risk 
before they were going to be unable to kind of complete the expectations of a work requirement uh, and they were going to continue on social assistance. So that's kind of the genesis of my research and it's continued in a variety of ways with a number of different areas.